This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm your host, Jonathan. Today, we pick up the question of who the King of England was in late October 1066, as well as Duke William's first steps outside of the stretch of land between Pevensey and Hastings. Let me urge each of you to hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're using and to share the show with others you know and on your social media. Also, great stuff is happening on Patreon as well. I've loved hearing the feedback from our Patreon supporters on our first series there about the 11th century Poland. We just released our first episode of the current series, a series which will shadow what's happening in this main season. This first episode focused on the falling out of the Battle of Clontarf in Ireland in 1014, which had enormous consequences for the Emerald Isle. We'll catch back up with Ireland for sure, but we'll also be following the goings-on of Wales, Scotland, again Ireland, Normandy, and others, as William struggles with the fierce rebelliousness of the proud Anglo-Saxons he'd unseated in England. So, if you're curious about the whole picture, you'll only find it on Patreon. All right, here we go, folks. Today's episode, episode 73, is entitled London Calling. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. It's late October, 1066. Duke William of Normandy was riding a wave of testosterone-filled pride. Within just a fortnight or so, he and his army had dealt a devastating blow to not only the southern English landscape, but to the entire English kingdom itself as well. King Harold II was no more. But who was the king of the kingdom became suddenly secondary to William, though. Obviously, it didn't stray too far from his thoughts. Pride's a funny thing, though. I wonder... If William was aware of the writings of St. Augustine of Hippo, who lived some 600 or so years earlier, given his devotion to the church throughout his life, it leads me to believe he was aware of St. Augustine. Assuming that's true, I wonder if William reminded himself of the saint's warnings about the sin of pride, you know, the one about pride changing angels into devils. What were William's plans for England exactly? On the surface, it seems, William was on a mission to wrest control away from the House of Godwinson. Well, trumped-up charges or not, William was determined to depose King Harold II, claiming in no uncertain terms that he, Duke William of Normandy, was the rightful heir to the throne of England, and that the English king was a usurper, nothing more than a criminal of the highest degree. An oath-breaker. But was his rule going to be better or worse for the English people? His own Norman subjects? Was it ever about someone other than William? Well, I think that's obvious. Not much has changed since 1066 has it in terms of leadership. Either way, pride can take you a very long way. But as the greatest of conquerors throughout history can attest, from Alexander the Great to the future Genghis Khan, that pride doesn't feed and water the very men the conquering is accomplished by. Sure, devils are created in pride's wake, but even the worst devils need to support their demons. William was approaching a breaking point, a breaking point that had his army on a razor's edge. 
Sure, the Battle of Hastings was a narrow success, but the conquest itself was in terrible danger of collapse. We'll see more of this when we study what goes into creating, organizing, and maintaining a sustained invasionary force when we finally reach the First Crusade. But William found himself in near dire straits when he noticed that the fields within many miles of his camps were becoming drained of resources, food, or otherwise. Many people, myself included, tend to overlook the aftermath of battles. From the cleanup to the moving on, it's an easy thing to forget about such things because, well, they're not glamorous or cool, and the outcome is written, therefore. What else is there to find so interesting? With thousands of mouths to feed and just as many horses to feed and water, well, not only did he have the natural backlash to contend with after such invasions, but he now had the reality of keeping his forces together to finish the job. But it wasn't just the staples necessary for keeping his soldiers and mounts alive. It was also the whole thing about paying them to worry about as well. Many potential and capable contenders were dealt an invasion-killing blow when their men simply left the battlefields and camps to return home when the golden treasure dried up. William wasn't home anymore. He wasn't in Normandy where he could demand his subjects to supply his army with such things and forbid his, his soldiers from raiding the fields. He was now in enemy territory, and make no mistake, most Englishmen and English women made the Normans feel as far from friends as they possibly could. Many skirmishes, especially in those early weeks and months of the conquest, either went by with mere allusion to them or just not mentioned at all in the records. William was no friend of the English, despite his dubious claim that he was their real king. And to boot, William was also not exactly among the most loyal of men either. Hardly. Much like their Norman cousins currently blazing their trails around southern Italy and Sicily about the same time, most of the knights in William's service were also Norman mercenaries. And not just Norman either. Mercenaries came from far and wide when William put out the call. Everyone on the continent knew well the riches and potential that England held, and everyone on the continent had harbored their own dreams of assuming control of such a place. In short... If William didn't have a plan to pay out soon, then he'd no doubt lose his strength, if not his very life. Again, it's the exact same story throughout history. In fact, you could make the case that it's only recently, over the last couple of centuries, that people fought to defend a realm collectively for little other reason than to protect their own nations. Before this, it was either you fought by force or you fought for self-gain. William may have been in control of these thousands of mounted knights, spearmen, and archers, but he was also, in a way, at their mercy. And, as men-at-arms everywhere and throughout history have come to realize, William had also become quite dependent on these men. He had sailed with them, landed with them, camped with them, strategized with them, marched and rode with them, and finally spilled blood with them. He'd looked upon death just as they had, and those who awoke on October 15th, 1066, and over the next two weeks, had lived to tell the tale. Warfare, despite what our movies and video games shamefully imply, warfare was and is nothing 
to celebrate, not the fighting itself. But the befores and the afters of each battle in history tells their stories. See, even under fair conditions, crossing the channel was a tricky business. The currents were erratic, and the weather could be moody at times, making it dangerous, regardless of when one makes the trip from one side to the other. And when William, two weeks earlier, had set sail from St. Valery back in Normandy, not everybody made it to England safely. This was almost an expectation in those days, which is why William was so careful about when exactly to cross. If you remember, he'd been waiting for weeks and weeks until he tried only to be pushed to the aforementioned St. Valery up the coast after a storm had suddenly whipped up and even sunk in several ships and their men. Well, a lost contingent of men, they did make it to England. But overnight, they'd been blown off course, showing up many miles up the channel. And William, deciding on what to do next, had heard of these men and where they'd landed. It was at a small port just 20 miles northeast, named Romney. William's mind was swimming with next moves and obstacles he now faced, and one was keeping his forces strong, so he moved his men up the coast toward Romney to retrieve those men. Well, the people of Romney, with rumors of another continental invasion flowing in and out of its roads and ports, they were a bit on edge. The wayward Normans made port and were instantly pounced upon. It's said the Normans and their mercenary allies were massacred on the spot. And we can make this assumption based on just one little passage from the chronicles of William's greatest cheerleader, William of Poitiers who wrote the following, quote, At Romney, he inflicted such punishment as the thought fit for the slaughter of his men who had landed there by mistake. End quote. And lo and behold, after William moved through Romney, leaving it in ashes and its residents either slain in the streets and in their homes or scattered to the forests to the north, many going as far as London, as did others in southern England throughout October, William realized how close he was to the more important town of Dover. But the people of Dover, already aware of the loss at Hastings, were still smarting from the events of the early 1050s when they were instigated into fighting by some reckless Flemish knights led by that scoundrel Count Eustace II. William pushed into Dover, which was a highly fortified town at that time, to say the least. The residents had been busy over the preceding decade to make sure such, atroci such atrocities couldn't befall them again. Mark Morris, in his book, The Norman Conquest, writes, quote, As the Normans approached, though, the defenders lost heart and surrendered. More burning followed when the town was occupied, which Poitiers insists was accidental and blames the lower ranks of the Duke's army, greedy for plunder, end quote. Now, this, by the way, would be a staple feature of William of Poitiers' accounts. The part about wanton destruction was never the fault of his beloved dukes. Rather, it was the fault of those lowly fools serving at the bottom of the military hierarchy. Of course. So with Pevensey and Hastings and now Romney and now occupied with smaller forces, William was slowly pushing southern England mainly those lands figuratively within, the site, uh, within sight of the Channel Waters, into Norman control. But he needed something more formidable with which to create a first base of operations and resupply, and Dover was perfect. And William spent a week or so reorganizing the population, 
of course with trusted Normans at the top, and ordering sturdier defensive structures, though Dover had already again offered some of its own, which was not lost on William. Now there's a little discrepancy in the records, but Dover had been a great location for defense for centuries, as far back as pre-Roman Celtic populations, actually. It never grew to be a major place of power, which is curious, but situated on the cliffs in modern Kent, the fortifications that would be improved upon by William in late 1066 to become a Motten Bailey fort, a Norman precursor to the much more recognizable castle, if you remember, and then improved upon by subsequent kings and local rulers, most notably by King Henry II, several decades later. This eventual castle, in my humble opinion, is one of the most impressive structures in all of England. Now, I'm speaking from an outsider here, and and an American who's only been as far as the Netherlands in terms of international travel, so I'm still looking into all these castles that are about to pop up here. But from what I've seen so far, Dover Castle is brilliant. Today it sits on an uneven hilltop, a regime of outside walls encircling it, roads for car traffic, and a keep built at the highest point with its outside wall built around it. It's a beautiful and terrifying structure for sure. Let's just say I'd probably choose to be on the inside of this castle than on the outside. But again, at the time, a simple Mott and Bailey was more than enough. But as, but as far as the English were concerned, that's all that was needed. England simply didn't have such structures built on the island quite yet, with an exception out west, near Wales, that a younger Earl Harold Godwinson had built. But even that was, was more of a fortified hunting lodge than an actual castle castle building. Keep that in mind as the season progresses. If anything has jumped out to me in researching the Norman conquest of England, it was the stunning number of Motten Baileys and proper castles that were built in such a astoundingly short span of time. I mean, you could almost play a drinking game with it, but I wouldn't recommend making plans for several hours after you listen to each episode. So let's stop and take stock for just a moment here. We need to understand that the majority of England was simply not under William's control by this time, by the time that is William set up shop in Dover. By all accounts, it was a nervous and rebellious kingdom, but it had no central control, no figurehead to direct all of that anger and anxiety into productive avenues. So, though William was nowhere near the conqueror he'd soon become, England was also so disjointed. I mean, who knew what was going to happen in the coming months and years? Besides all of that, we can't forget that William's army was on its own. No supply line to Normandy set up yet. So William had okayed the use of force to take what each soldier needed to survive. That is, from Pevensey to Dover, it was really scorched earth for all intents and purposes. It was, for so many people, a form of hell. And it wasn't paradise for William's men either, as, as food and drink began running short, causing them to drink, gasp, water, if you can believe it. Well, most of the water was clean still in those days, but with such a massive army using all that water, along with their horses, well, it turned pretty quickly. And William had to navigate a deadly outbreak of dysentery, which took many, many lives. Even William succumbed to some illness or another, presumably dysentery, but there's no hard evidence of this, just some fairly confident presumption given the circumstances. But as Poitiers, Poitiers put it, William still moved on to different areas, quote, lest the army should suffer from a shortage of supplies, end quote. 
And it was at this point, from Dover, William took his first true steps northward toward London and toward his crown. Peter Rex, in English Resistance, mentions something interesting about William's next tactic as he made his way toward London. He says, quote, William preferred economy of, of effort, avoiding any pitched battle, and preferring the blockade, end quote. That's an interesting thing to say, to describe a man who saw red from the time of Harold Godwinson's ascension to the throne to the time he approached Dover many months later. What, now William, this, this soon-to-be conqueror, is just going to tap dance around the real treasure to be found on his quest to invade England, that is, the crown itself of the kingdom? It seems antithetical to William's whole milieu, but Rex is probably spot on with William's thinking here. And the, and the clues have already been kind of laid in this episode already. As the Normans pushed north from Dover, with the exceptions of garrisons he'd already set up along the way in places like Pevensey, Hastings, Romney, and Dover, William ordered his men to take what was needed from the towns and fields with devastating consequences. But he began to take an interesting, arching path toward London, first turning west. But as he did so, word came from the ancient Anglo-Saxon capital of Winchester, See, since January 1066, upon the death of her husband, King Edward, Queen Edith, a Godwinson herself, remember, was living there atop the kingdom's treasury, it's worth noting. As William pushed his entire force north, word came from Winchester that the queen was also the figurehead of a little resistance out there. Now again, William wasn't about to send another full force into actual battle, it wasn't just food and supplies that were scarce resources in late 1066. The men and the horses themselves were also quite scarce and becoming more so. Given what he'd already, just along that small slice of South England coastal villages and towns, seen, he knew the rest of the kingdom was probably up for a fight too. He had to conserve as many resources, human or otherwise, as he could, saving them specifically for those pitched battles, which were no doubt an inevitability. So in dealing with Queen Edith and her home of Winchester, we begin to see a bit of clever politicking on William's part, which is interesting in and of itself as William, as we know from his life so far, was a hammer. And we know one thing about hammers. When you're a hammer, everything you see are nails. William wasn't exactly a savvy politician. He was a clever tactician, sure, but politics wasn't exactly his forte. In the case of Winchester, we see a bit of preferential treatment when William simply demanded a profession of loyalty from the good folks of Edith's Winchester, though other towns, villages, and cities were forced to accept other less-than-savory terms at a sword's point, quite literally, actually. William's riders returned very soon afterwards with news of Winchester's submission, and William's attentions could return fully to his target of London. And it's interesting that William didn't ride on Winchester straight away. Well, think about it. You have the treasury of the kingdom, now within your physical and political grasp, but you leave it be for the time. It was an act of, I'd say, supreme confidence, and it lends credence to Poitiers' claim that William was a patient ruler who wished to, you know, do things right. Now, this is dubious, which is pretty accurate description of Poitiers' writing for the most part, I think. But, I mean, even Peter Rex calls William of Poitiers 
uh, quote-unquote, an indefatigable spin doctor. Now, Poitier says that William was hesitant to, quote-unquote, disturb the tranquility of the kingdom, which is crazy. I mean, did Poitier just completely miss the part that the kingdom's tranquility was pretty much blown out of the water just three weeks earlier when, you know, William led a massive invasionary force to Hastings, which resulted in said tranquil kingdom's king falling in battle? I mean, who is this guy anyway? Just seems to be missing the boat. Well, with Winchester now subdued, though not under his immediate control, as he'd yet to place a trusted knight to oversee, and if need be force, any rabble-rousers into submission, see, it was back to London. As Morris writes, quote, If he had not known before, by now William had heard about the election of Edgar Etheling, end quote. And Morris quotes the Carmen that says, quote, When he learnt what had been done in London, contrary to justice and by fools, he ordered his troops to approach the walls of the city. Also, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles ratchets up the emotions of the time a bit more when it recorded William allowing his forces to continue its campaign of torching communities, stealing whatever it needed and slaughtering its people. This seeks to show the English perspective feelings about the situation, rather than the actual events, though I'm sure it wasn't lying, per se. Rex writes, quote, William's anger when he heard of this, this being the elevation of Edgar Etheling to king, suggests that support for Edgar was more widespread than is apparent now, end quote. It was at William's approach toward London that the records become a bit muffled, I suppose. So, London's bustling heart was surrounded by stout walls with the London Bridge connecting it to the villages and houses on the south bank of the mighty Thames. Essentially, it sounds like William sent a group of riders ahead, again from the south of the river, to approach the bridge or even to cross it threateningly. Well, those rambunctious Londoners sent out its own riders to get into a bit of a scrap with the Normans, but they were quickly and easily repelled, and most made it back behind the safety of the walls. Those Norman riders were a bit perturbed by the audacity of their English foes, so they decided to set most of the unprotected homes on the south side of the river aflame in retaliation before returning to their duke's side. But it showed that the citizens of London weren't going to submit without making their thoughts known. Several hundred knights were turned away by mere citizens, and it's times like these in English history, at least through my own lens, that we see a ferocity and independence I so admire in my cultural and political heritage. As dismal as that English sortie may have been, it did have the effect of forcing William into rethinking his plan to enter London. Well, first and foremost, he wouldn't be riding in triumphantly and being hailed as a conquering hero. The Londoners clearly weren't in that sort of mood. William resorted to taking the long way to London. The scenic route, you could say. But there would be no touristy sightseeing on this adventure, as William made a wide arc to the west to ford the Thames further upriver. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle states unequivocally that William, quote-unquote, harried that part of the country through which he advanced. And, Morris adds, quote, From this moment, if not before, forging became outright ravaging, willful and deliberate destruction, intended to sow fear among those who had not yet submitted, end quote. And, according to John of Worcester, Sussex, Kent, Hampshire, Middlesex, and Hertfordshire 
were quote-unquote laid waste. Oh, by the way, I'd like to thank my good friend from the UK who reached out to correct my pronunciation of Hertfordshire after the last episode. So, it seems in the Queen's English, vowels are negotiable. But I guess we live and we learn. Anyway, soon though, William made a crossing at Wallingford, some 60 miles, or 95 or so kilometers, straight west of London. And after resting for maybe a week, again, the records are a bit fuzzy for this time period, William, now no doubt into November, worked his way north. But first, while at Wallingford, William had a distinguished guest, his first distinguished English guest of his time on the island, actually, the powerful Archbishop Stigand of Canterbury apparently knew a winning horse when he saw one, because he arrived to share his loyalty to the Norman Duke, and he probably knew what was in store had he not reached out to William first. See, if you remember, it was Archbishop Stigand who crowned King Harold II just 11 months earlier, so William might have pushed the influential Archbishop aside and blamed it on lack of loyalty to the English crown. Stigand was no fool. But see, by offering fealty to William, he was removing his support of England's elected king, Edgar Etheling. Get this, the guy who Stigand had just propped up days earlier in London. Yeah, Stigand wasn't a fool, but he also wasn't the, exactly the most loyal to his countrymen. Now, Rex adds to this another thought worth considering. He says, quote, The churchmen, especially the bishops, concerned also about their lands, preferred a strong king who could guarantee them their integrity of title and possession. Some of the earliest writs of the conqueror are confirmations of ecclesiastical estates. The churches secured their endowments by a combination of submission, gifts to William, and a readiness to accept Norman knights as tenants of their lands. End quote. And we'll see this play out quite extensively, as recorded in the records from folks like William of Poitiers and Orderic Vitalis to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles in the, Dom- in the Doomsday Book. Morse continued, quote, The submission of the Archbishop of Canterbury was, of course, significant. But the opposition in London, for the time being, continued. And so therefore did the harrying. Having crossed the Thames at Wallingford, the Norman army resumed its devastating progress, turning northeast so that the line of their march began to encircle the capital. End quote. From there, William established his next castle, a Mott and Bailey structure, at Berkhamstead, again some 30 miles or 45 kilometers to the northwest of London. By the way, for those playing at home, drink. With word reaching London of Stiggins' treachery and William's crossing of the Thames and approaching fast, well, London fell into despair, not felt since the fall of Edmund Ironsides. And the dominoes continued to fall as Londoners realized that Edwin and Morcar, their only real hopes, abandoned them. John of Worcester records the two earls, quote-unquote, withdrew their support and returned home with their army. Now, at that point, London gave a collective shudder at their turn of fortune, gave a last gasp, and shoulders hunched, they gave up the resistance to the approaching Norman horde. Left with no real choice, the young and noble Edgar Etheling, knowing that the Duke could very easily label him a traitor and have him executed on the spot, 
decided to ride with, as Morris puts it, quote-unquote, a delegation of magnates and bishops toward the only place that made sense at the moment, Berkhamsted, to Duke William. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicles wasn't having any of that young and noble Edgar Etheling crap, though. It states, quote, out of necessity after most damage had been done, and it was a great piece of folly that they had not done it earlier, they gave hostages and swore oaths to him, and he promised them that he would be a gracious lord, end quote. But as we've asked already, when precisely, when precisely was William the official king of England? Well, again, it's not that easy. The facts, though, are this. One, Edgar Etheling was elected by the nobility, including Earls Edwin and Morcar, to be England's new king. Two, when the Bishop of Peterborough died from his participation in the Battle of Hastings, the monks there had another bishop confirmed. See, bishops can only be confirmed officially by the king, so... Edgar Etheling confirmed the new bishop, a marker that he and others already considered him the king of England. And three, it was Edgar Etheling, having lost the support of his two most powerful earls, who rode out to meet the usurper and essentially hand over the crown, so to speak, or at least rulership of the kingdom, whatever the title amounted to at that point. And William of Poitiers was very clear that Duke William wasn't in any hurry to be crowned King of England, which is probably just a bit more propaganda, attempting to make his duke out to be a patient and understanding ruler, and not one who swept in town and grabbed it. And I wonder if it was also intended to contrast Duke William with King Harold Godwinson, who, it's said, was awfully quick to be crowned the very next day after Edward's death. But Poitiers, it's worth noting, attributed another reason to William, quote-unquote, not being in any hurry for the crown. According to Peter Rex, William, quote, only agreed at Archbishop Eldred's insistence. He claims that the situation was still confused with, with rebels lurking around already in November 1066 to disturb the tranquility of the kingdom and William desired to have Matilda crowned at the same time, so emphasizing his need to be cautious so near the summit of his ambitions to become king, end quote. And to back this claim up further, Morris writes, quote, William himself hesitated. It was not seemly to rush when climbing to the topmost pinnacle. Given that this had been the whole point of the conquest, we might assume that this scene is Poitiers' own invention, a conceit designed to emphasize his master's thoughtfulness and modesty, and hence ultimately his suitability to rule, end quote. Well, regardless of Poitiers' claims that his dear Duke had only the hearts and minds of the English people in mind when he eventually did accept the crown, yeah, upon Edgar Etheling's visit to William and submitting to the Norman, if you would have asked any Englishman who the king was in that moment, it would have been William. No question. Morris states that, quote, coronation, to repeat, was simply confirmation. It conferred God's, God's blessing but not the kingship itself. English kingship was elective. A ruler's reign began the moment he was accepted by the magnates. End quote. But Morris continues with exactly why William was not, by his own customs and admission, the new king of England. Quote, the Normans, however, saw matters differently. On the continent, a king was created at the moment of his coronation, not 
before. The Edgar episode, of course, gave them good reason for insisting on this point. The boy had not been crowned, ergo, he was not the king. The English may have thought this was rather irregular, but they were clearly in no position to debate constitutional practice and so fell quickly into line with Norman thinking. At the same time, they realized that this new logic left the country in an anxious state of limbo. England would have no king until William was crowned. End quote. And to this point also, William's magnates and bishops urged him to just get crowned already. Just make it official. Because, you know, the longer you go without a crown, the longer England goes without a king, as the logic goes. And the longer England goes without a king, the longer you look like a simple invader and not its true ruler. And the longer you look like a simple invader and England goes without a king, the more time anyone and everyone looks upon England with hungry eyes and high hopes. I mean, it's not out of the realm of possibility that others would have been looking at William, at what William was doing in 1066. Not only were Earls Edwin and Morcar heading back to their own earldoms of Mercia and Northumbria to consolidate their support at home, but we also can't forget about Mercia's connections with Wales and Northumbria's connections with Scotland. And word had it that the surviving members of the Godwinsons were, in, were on their way at the moment to the Irish-slash-Viking stronghold of Dublin. Norway was still out there, back-burner threat, though. It was after the death of the legend Hardrada just a month earlier. Norway was then ruled by Hardrada's son, King Magnus II Haraldson, and no one was quite sure what the Norwegians were thinking in late 1066. Revenge, perhaps? And Rex mentioned something I personally hadn't thought about yet, which was... The Dane Law. Quote, there was a real possibility that the Dane Law magnates would refuse to accept the Battle of Hastings as decisive. They might invite Swain Esterson of Denmark to assert his claim to the English throne. End quote. Yeah, remember him? King Swain II Esterson, the son of Jarl Ulf Thorgelson and Estrid Sven's daughter, thus the grandson, uh, Swain Forkbeard, nephew of Canute the Great and second cousins to the deceased King Harold Godwinson? Well, Swain Esterson just ended his very long-running beef with Harold Hardrada upon that guy's death, death, so what's to say that Rex isn't onto something there? What if the Dane Law, which was still well and good in the minds of the English specifically, those in Northumbria and East Anglia, wouldn't call in a favor and let another Dane come to rule? I mean, all in all, though not exactly what the Anglo-Saxons had in mind when Ironsides was defeated, King Newt was hardly a net negative for the kingdom, was he? Swain Esterson had familial connections to England through the Godwinsons, and he'd already proven without a shadow of a doubt that he was a strong leader, able to withstand decades of hassling from Hardrada. This, all of this, was no doubt on William's mind as he encircled London in the weeks after Hastings. Oh, and a side note, don't let those magnates, magnates and bishops mentioned earlier, the ones, you know, urging William to just put the damn crown on already, don't let them fool you. Sure, all good points about waiting too long, but they weren't all innocent here, clergy or otherwise. See, the sooner William took the crown, the sooner William could start divvying out the spoils of war, namely land. Wonderful, fertile vast, rich English land. As William circled London with as much patience as he could muster, 
Make no mistake, the wolves were also circling him. William made camp just west of London, near Westminster Abbey, in late November of 1066. Ironically, this is a pretty new abbey, commissioned by King Edward just years earlier. From Westminster, it was clear to absolutely everyone that William was going to wait these rebellious Londoners out. Well, the waiting wouldn't exactly be passive. He sent raids into the into the surrounding fields and villages, murdering and ransacking, forcing more and more people to flee into the city walls. As mentioned, London was already swelled to near bursting by the influx of Southerners who flooded in after Hastings and in the weeks since then, thus stressing every resource to a breaking point. He was desperate to avoid pushing his way into the kingdom's largest and most influential city. Rex writes, quote, he was unwilling to enter London until its inhabitants had been suitably overawed. For, as Poitiers wrote, he saw that it was of the first importance to contain the Londoners strictly. End quote. Note the word contain. At this point, he was submission, not war. Most importantly, though, it seems that William had ordered a blockade of London at some point, which quickened the inevitable surrender of the city. London is certainly an exceptional city. London has proven it could take a beating and keep on ticking, but it hadn't had to succumb to someone like William the Conqueror, Duke of Normandy, before. And it was forced to do just that in early December. One by one, magnates and bishops and thanes fell into line. Bishop Wolfston of Worcester, Bishop Walter of Hereford, Esgar the Staller, Sheriff of Middlesex, business leaders in and around London, Archbishop Eldred of York, even somewhat farther down the hierarchy we find a Thorkel of Limis, Thane of a region within the Midlands. This, after those in Dover, Winchester, namely the Dowager Queen herself, Archbishop Stigand of Canterbury, and most importantly, King-elect Edgar Etheling. Or Derek Vitalis records later the collapse of London's resistance to William. Quote, Renouncing allegiance to Edgar, they made peace with William, acknowledging him as their lord, and were graciously taken under his protection and reinvested with all their former offices and honors. The Londoners also took the wise course and surrendered to the Duke, bringing him all the hostages he named and required. End quote. So, with William entering London, finally, in early December of 1066, along with magnates and bishops and thanes and peasants all pledging their submission and fealty to him, dropping like dominoes, we end this episode. Now, in the next episode, William takes the crown of England and creates a dynasty whose lineage can be traced all the way to Queen Elizabeth II today, and I can't wait to tell you about it. <laughs> <laughs>